So, but go ahead and open your Bibles with me to the book of Exodus. For those of you who are new with us, we, are walk, we walk through books, just one book at a time, point of the passage, point of the sermon. We find ourselves in the book of Exodus for an extended season. Um, and uh, today, as we, we're moving our way into um, chapter, through chapter 7, um, and there, let's be honest, there are some passages that we come across and topics that are just easier than others. Um, they're, they're easier to preach, they're easier to teach, they're, they're easier to follow, they're easier to understand, they're easier to receive. And then there are some that are, are, are difficult to preach. They're difficult to teach, they're difficult to understand, they're difficult to receive. And then we have a passage like today. The passage that we have before us today, I think is kind of a combination of the two. Because I think it's, for the most part, fairly easy to understand. We can see what's taking place. We see kind of what the point is being made. But it's really hard to preach and it's really hard to receive. Because it's addressing something, it's addressing things that we don't naturally enjoy talking about. Don't we, we don't feel comfortable talking about. We don't wake up in the day and be like, man, I want to talk about judgment. I want to talk about God's wrath. That's, that's not where we naturally want to go. Now, I am incredibly, incredibly thankful that our God is just beyond thankful that our God is just. I am incredibly encouraged by knowing that all the wrongs in this world are gonna one day be made right. That is an encouraging thought. But I don't enjoy thinking about God's judgment and his wrath. I know no one who does. I'm not in any way encouraged by the reality that I, that I have unbelieving friends and loved ones who, if they are to die today, they're going to spend... Um, eternity experiencing God's judgment and his wrath. I'm not encouraged in knowing that there are still billions of people upon our planet who have still have never heard of the good news of the hope that is found in Christ. And it's those unpleasant images and those unpleasant emotions that we are prone to come to when we think about God's judgment and his wrath that are the catalyst for why so many people and so many churches today shy away from talking about God's judgment and wrath. We'll speak of God's love, we'll speak of God's mercy, we'll speak of his grace, but not his judgment and wrath. You're not gonna find this in any like how to grow your church fast seminar, right? We have many today who will even deny these things altogether, saying that a loving God cannot be these things, cannot be both the dispenser of love and the dispenser of judgment. They claim that that is contradictory. Maybe that's where you find yourself today. To which I respond in those conversations, I guess you have never really loved anyone, have you? They respond with a perplexing look, a perplexing answer, kind of like, well, what do you mean? Of course I've loved. I, I love my family. I love my friends. I know what it is to love, which is then where I will then ask, so how would you respond if someone hurt the person or person that you love most? How would you respond, church? If someone hurt the, the person or persons that you love most, what is going to well up within you? A desire for what? A desire for justice a desire for that wrong to be made right. Everyone desires justice. It's innate within us. So then I ask, so what does your response, your desire for justice say about your love? The answer is that love and justice are intimately tied together. Whether we want to believe it or admit it or not, they are intimately tied together. So then we have to ask, and I, I will ask, who does God love most? 
And this is where most and many within our postmodern culture will respond with, with an answer of, well, me, us. He loves his people the most. That, that, that's who he loves most. And the answer is no, he doesn't. God exists to love himself, to glorify himself. The chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. It's not the other way around. The chief end of man is to love God and to glorify God, not just for God to love us, but for us to love God. To which then I will be asked, but Jeremy, is that not idolatry? That God is exclusively focused upon his love for himself? Again, the answer is no. Because who is there higher for God to love? Who is there greater, more deserving of worship than him? No one. So when he is not loved, when he, the one who he loves most, is sinned against, how should we expect him to respond? With justice, with judgment, with righteous wrath against those doing the offending. See, when anyone ever protests against God's judgment, kind of pushes it aside, dismisses his judgment, it's a sign that they are actually minimizing their own sin and at the same time minimizing the holiness and the sovereignty of God. They're not seeing God for who he is and nor are they seeing themselves for who they are in the presence of holy and sovereign God. And that cannot happen. And that's what we see unfolding throughout our text today and in subsequent chapters to follow. Chapter, chapter seven, verse eight. Then the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, when Pharaoh says to you, prove yourselves by working a miracle, then you shall say to Aaron, take yourself, take your staff and cast it down before Pharaoh that it may become a serpent. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded. Aaron cast down his staff before Pharaoh and his servants, and it became a serpent. Then Pharaoh summoned the wise men and the sorcerers, and they, the magicians of Egypt, also did the same by their secret arts. For each man cast down his staff, and they became serpents. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. Still Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning as he is going out to the water. Stand on the bank of the Nile to meet him. And take in your hand the staff that turned into a serpent. And you shall say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, sent me to you, saying, Let my people go, that they may serve me in the wilderness. But so far you have not obeyed. Thus says the Lord, By this you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold, with this staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water that is in the Nile, and it shall turn into blood. And the fish in the Nile shall die, and the Nile will stink, and the Egyptians will grow weary of drinking water from the Nile. And the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, Take your staff and stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over their rivers, their canals, and their ponds, and all their pools of water, so that they may become blood. And there shall be blood throughout all the land of Egypt, even in vessels of wood and in vessels of stone. Moses and Aaron did as the Lord commanded. In the sight of Pharaoh and in the sight of his servants, he lifted up the staff and struck the water in the Nile. And all the water in the Nile turned into blood. And the fish in the Nile died, and the Nile stank, so that the Egyptians could not drink water from the Nile. There was blood throughout all the land of Egypt, but the magicians of Egypt did the same by by their secret arts. So Pharaoh's heart remained hardened, 
and he would not listen to them. As the Lord had said, Pharaoh turned and went into his house and he did not take even this to heart. And all the Egyptians dug along the Nile for water to drink, for they could not drink the water of the Nile. Seven full days passed after the Lord had struck the Nile. Now in preparation for this series, I debated on how to preach through the plagues. Several different options there. And for a brief moment, I thought about doing them one at a time. But then I thought, that's just a little too much time in the plagues um, there. And can you picture it? Hey, be encouraged, church. We're going to spend the next 10 weeks talking about plagues and judgment. So I, I decided against that. I didn't think that would be the best option. But at the same time, I felt that doing them all in one sermon was a little um, not enough, you should say. It would not do this justice to do it all in one message. So I decided that we're going to do the first plague by itself or in conjunction with the staff being turned into the serpent. And, and then we're going to follow that up with another sermon that's going to be focused on plagues two through six. And then another sermon that will be focused on plagues seven through nine. And then we're going to be on, gathering together on Easter Sunday where we will look at um, the 10th plague and Passover um, by itself. Now, some in our postmodern world attempt to explain away these plagues as just natural phenomena. They come up with natural excuses for why these plagues could have happened. And if you're a history, a history channel person, you, you've probably seen some of these. Um, you've seen kind of the, the documentaries and the things that come out and say, hey, this is how this actually happened, so on and so forth. As we're moving into the Easter season, you're going to see more of those kind of coming on, all the various news networks and different places. And so I want to come right out of the gate and, and say, I believe all of these plagues and all of these acts to, to be divine acts of God. They come from the hand of God. And I'll give you two reasons for why I believe that these are, these are uh, divine acts of God. One, because the Bible says so. That, that's number one. And we can dive into a whole other sermon and a whole series of sermons upon the authority of God's word and the authority of scripture, why we believe that. But because the Bible says so. And two, because... That's what Pharaoh himself believed them to be. He believed them to be divine acts of God, which is something I've always found interesting about this. That Pharaoh believes them to be divine acts of God. Pharaoh recognizes the plagues are from God, but he still doesn't see God as sovereign. Still doesn't believe God to be Lord, which is a reminder that someone can believe in the existence of God without truly believing in God. Can believe in his existence, even his power but not submit to him as Lord of all, which is not saving faith. We have a whole culture of people who will claim to believe in God. People all over the world will, will claim to believe in God. Romans 1 tells us that they are without excuse for, for everyone has, knows as evidence that there is God, for God has revealed himself through his divine attributes through all of creation. But that's not saving faith. And it's an incredibly scary place to be, to be in a spot where you claim to believe in God, but you really don't believe in God. It's a scary place to be. To think that you're right and to think that you're good, but you don't believe in the God of the universe as Lord as sovereign. And I pray this is not where you find yourself today, but if you do find yourself there today, you do find yourself as a skeptic, you do find yourself in a place where your heart, heart is hardened, I pray that today that you will soften your heart towards the Lord and that you will repent and you'll believe in the gospel. 
But the entire purpose behind these plagues, from the water turning to blood, to the frogs, the gnats, the flies, the livestock dying, the boils, the hail, the locusts, the darkness, and the culminating in the death of the firstborn, the entire purpose behind these plagues is found in verse 17, with the Lord saying, by this you shall know that I am the Lord. Not, not the little G gods of Egypt, not the Nile River gods, not their, their land gods, not their sky gods, but by this you shall know that I am the Lord. God putting his glory on display through their judgment. The point being that God wants everyone to know that he is God and there is no other. There is no other besides him. That, that's the first of the 10 commandments. He demands that you shall have no gods before me. He also demands that he be worshiped above everyone and anything else, which is the second commandment. You shall have no idols before me. We're to serve and to worship no one and nothing but God alone, which is why he's bringing his people out of Egypt to begin with. We see in verse 16, let my people go that or so that they may serve me in the wilderness. Not you, Pharaoh, but me alone. The reminder that our God is a jealous God who both demands and desires to be served and to be worshiped, which begs the question for each and every one of us here today, who is our God? Who is the God of whom we worship? Who is the God of whom we serve? Who is the God of who we are trusting as our, our hope in this life and in the next? Who is it today that you trust and serve and find your joy and the treasure? So what we have in verses eight through 13 is a preview of the recurring pattern that we're gonna find throughout these plagues. We've got number one here we see is the obedience of Moses and Aaron. And then you're gonna follow that up with God's sovereignty over Egypt's gods. And then you're going to see after that, we're gonna see Pharaoh sorcerers and magicians performing and imitating various different acts of, of some of the plagues. Now, we're not gonna see that in every single one of the plagues, but we're gonna see Pharaoh's magicians imitating the, the plagues of God. And then four, we see the continued hardening of Pharaoh's heart. That's, that's our exegetical outline, our, our, the reoccurring pattern that we see running throughout the 10 plagues. So, so let's take a look how these play out in verses eight through 13, starting with the obedience of Moses and Aaron. They knew, they, they knew here, they, the key word here is they know is obedience. Keyword for them, keyword for us, the application, obedience. The Lord telling Moses and Aaron that Pharaoh is gonna ask for a sign. And in response, the Lord's gonna give him a sign. He's gonna turn the staff into a serpent. The staff serving as a reminder that God is the one who these miracles are coming from. Not, not Moses, not Aaron, not their strength, not their wisdom, not their eloquence, none of this. Moses and Aaron are, are, are doing none of this in their own strength, completely relying upon God. And how, does, how do Moses and Aaron respond? With obedience. With obedience, verse 10, they did just as the Lord commanded, which tells us that Moses has come a long, long way in his walk with the Lord in a relatively short amount of time because that wasn't always the case with Moses, was it? We haven't seen that, right? Do you remember the very first time that like, the Lord introduced this sign of a serpent, uh, the staff being turned into the serpent to Moses? Do you remember that in the very first part of chapter four when Moses was instructed by the Lord, hey, throw your staff down? And what happened to that staff? It, it turned into the serpent. And how did Moses respond? 
and he takes off running in the opposite direction, right? Like, again, I, I, one of those things that we're going to see throughout this text, of like, man, I would have loved to have seen that. Moses is running, and then God says, hey, hold up, come back, grab it by the tail. Again, like, why would anybody do that? You don't grab a snake by the tail unless God tells you to. And that's what he does. He goes and he grabs it, turns back into a staff. And since then, we have seen Moses have his fair shares of ups and downs. He's questioned God. He's doubted God. He's felt ill-equipped to do what God is calling him to do. He's thrown out excuses of why he can't do what God is calling him to do. I'm not eloquent enough. I'm not smart enough. I can't do this and I can't do that. Please send somebody else, God. Ultimately say, I don't want to do this. Man, I find Moses re- relatable. Well, I, I see Moses there, and I don't want to admit it, but like, man, I can relate to that. Like doubting and insecurities, and Lord, I'm not eloquent enough, and I can't do this, and I can't do that. And he's saying, I'm not requiring your eloquence. I'm not requiring all of those things. I want your faithfulness. I want your obedience. Here, but here we see Aaron and Moses did just as the Lord commanded it's all they're required to do. They did it. Which again is a short testimony of how much Moses has grown in a relatively short amount of time. And again, the reminder that God doesn't require us to have all the answers. Praise God for that, right? He doesn't require us to, to be eloquent and he doesn't require us to be fearless. But he does expect our obedience. He expects us to faithfully do what he calls us to do. And this doesn't just apply to believers. But all people, we see this of, of, of Pharaoh. Pharaoh is being disobedient. He's not obeying the Lord's command. But the call is for him to obey the Lord's command. Let my people go. So if you're not submitting to Christ as Lord today, maybe you're, you're a skeptic. Maybe you're like, I don't know about this stuff. But whether you believe it or not, if you are not submitting to Christ as Lord, you are walking in disobedience to the sovereign God of the universe who demands your obedience and your worship. Which brings us to pattern number two. God's sovereignty over Egypt's gods. Little g, gods. And the reminder to us that God is sovereign over everything. There is nothing that he is not sovereign over. He is the one who spoke everything that exists into existence with a simple word. Out of nothing, he created everything that exists. And here the Lord telling Moses and Aaron to take your staff and cast it down before Pharaoh that it may become a serpent. The snake being a creature that was worshiped as a, again, as a god in, in Egypt. The image of a cobra being worn on Pharaoh's headdress as a symbol of sovereignty. And what God is about to do through this sign and through the, the plagues that are going to come is demonstrate, hey, I'm going to show you who's really sovereign. I'm going to show you who's, who's king. Not Pharaoh, not the river gods, not, not the land gods, not the sky gods, but God, the Lord Capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, Yahweh, I am sovereign. That's what he's about to show them. But what happens? Pattern number three, Pharaoh's sorcerers and magicians imitate God's miracles. And yet another important lesson for us, the reminder that demonic imitation is real and is alive and well today because when when the staff turned into a serpent, how did Pharaoh respond? Look at verse 11. Then Pharaoh summoned the wise men and the sorcerers and they, the magicians of Egypt, also did the same by their secret arts. So what are we to make of this? 
They're doing the same, like Pharaoh's magicians and sorcerers doing the same acts here. How? Like, what are we to make of this? Well, some have tried to discount it uh, this way by saying, hey, what's happening here? It's not real magic. They're not really doing the same thing. It's kind of more of a sleight of hand. It's an illusion. They're kind of watering it down. It's kind of like snake charmers. If you go over to Egypt now, you're walking through the, the marketplaces. You're going to find snake charmers over there right now. And they say, that, that's all this kind of stuff really is. But explanations like that, trying to just kind of rebuff what's happening here, miss the point of the passage and diminish the reality of the demonic within our world. Diminishes that reality because these acts of the magicians are nothing less than the work of Satan. They are a demonic act. And a reminder of the words of Paul in Ephesians chapter six that we are locked in a spiritual warfare. Every single one of us, when we wake up in the morning and we go to bed at night and even while we're sleeping, we are in the midst of a spiritual warfare, a literal fight for our lives, whether we realize it or not, whether we wanna believe it or not. Thus the reason Paul in Ephesians chapter six, verse 11 writes, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. We cannot forget this, church. This is real, not imaginary. If we think it's imaginary, we ourselves will find ourselves deceived and, and the deception will lead to death. Verse 13, therefore take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Church, we cannot be naive when it comes to understanding the reality of our enemy. He is real. We've quoted over and over again, he is looking to steal, he is looking to kill, he is looking to destroy. He is the ultimate deceiver, putting forth his imitations in, in order to deceive and to confuse. We may not have staffs turning into serpents and rivers turning to blood before our very eyes, but the evil one is scheming all around us in every day and every moment with deception. Again, whether we realize it or not. Deceiving us into thinking that the idols of this world, the little G gods of this world are where we're gonna find our satisfaction, our joy, and even our salvation taking even the really good God-created things of this world like family and deceiving us into thinking that they will bring us that true and lasting joy and satisfaction, that our salvation is gonna be found in the good which we do even within our homes. And it's not, which is why we must take up the whole armor of God to remain alert and withstand. And how do we do that? It's like a whole other sermon in and of itself right there. It's knowing God's word, memorizing God's word, trusting in this power of the spirit. Like we cannot do this on our own. We're not intended to do this on our own. That's why the Lord has sent us a helper. Spending time in prayer, growing in fellowship with, with the church. Again, we can't do this alone in our power, thus relying on the spirit. And we must rely on the church corporately to help us and walk through this fight together. We need each other. Again, that's a whole other sermon in and of itself. But here's where Exodus, the book of Exodus should provide us with great comfort and great confidence in this spiritual warfare. As it teaches us that the evil one, as deceptive as he may be, he is no match for our sovereign God. 
no match for our sovereign God. Because look what happens in the second part of verse 12. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. <laughs> That's another one of those moments like, I wish I was there to see that. I wish I could have seen God's serpent swallowed up Pharaoh's serpent. It's like, animal planet, eat your heart out. Like, I want to see this right here. I'll pay big money to watch that one, right? But let's focus on the word swallow here for a moment. Look at the word swallow. Because the only other time we see the verb swallow used in the entire narrative is chapter 15, verse 12. Now, what's chapter 15 and verse 12? It's a song from Moses reflecting back about all that God has just done with the Exodus. When the Egyptian soldiers are swallowed up by the Red Sea. So you got the mighty Egyptian army, right? Pharaoh has let the people go. Just spoiler alert, he's gonna let them go at some point. And he's gonna let them go. They're gonna make it all the way to the Red Sea and they're gonna be like, what are we gonna do? We can't go any farther. Has God brought us out here to die? And here comes the mighty Egyptian army. Their fears increase. And what does God do? He holds the Egyptian army at bay and he parts the Red Sea. And his people walk across safely on dry ground. They get to the other side. God releases the Egyptian army to continue in their pursuit. They come in down into that, that cavus and the waters do what? They crash down upon the Egyptian army. Then Moses in his song reflecting upon that, speaking of the Lord and saying, you stretched out your right hand. You stretched out your sovereign hand. The earth swallowed them. And in an instant they were gone. This mighty army of chariots, gone. Because the Lord did it. That's what's being foreshadowed here with the staff and the serpent. Bring all the magic and the tricks that you want. Imitate all you want, but demonic imitation cannot save. It can only deceive. Only God can save which is why only he can fulfill the promise that we see in Isaiah chapter 25, verse eight, that he will swallow up death, our greatest enemy. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces and the reproach of his people, he will take away from all the earth for the Lord has spoken. The sovereign God has spoken. Death will be defeated. It will be nothing more than a footstool at his feet and every tear will be wiped away from those who believe. Yet even with all of this, what do we continue to see is our pattern. Number four, the continued hardening of Pharaoh's heart, which is a reminder to each of us not to let our heart become hardened towards God. If you are here today and you are feeling like your heart is growing harder towards God and more apathetic towards the things of God, you're becoming more distant in your desire to spend time with God, do not let your heart grow hardened against him. Fight against that with every ounce of your being. Call upon the church to help you in this. You are not in this alone. Spend time in prayer. Spend time as in word. Put on the whole armor of God. Do not let your heart grow hardened towards God. But then we look at verse eight. Pharaoh will say, prove yourself by working a miracle. And what does the Lord provide? A miracle. Yet Pharaoh's heart remained hardened towards God. 
He wouldn't listen, just as the Lord had said. He told him he's not going to listen. He says, give me a miracle, then I'll, I'll believe, right? He gives him a miracle. He still doesn't listen, which is a reminder that no sign will ever be enough to convince an unbelieving heart. No sign will ever be enough to convince an unbelieving heart. Just think about all the signs people witnessed from Jesus throughout his ministry. The feeding of the thousands, the healing, the raising of the dead, the casting out demons, the walking on water, the calming of the storms, all enough to draw large crowds, but none being enough in and of themselves to convince unbelieving hearts to believe, which is something we have talked about before. Whether it's Pharaoh or the Pharisees or people today, there's always gonna be a call for a sign. Hey, if God would just do this, whatever this is, hey, then I'll believe. We've heard that before. If God will just answer these questions, this question, then, then I'll believe. But the realization there is it's never enough to convince an unbelieving heart. Just think about how many people saw the empty tomb. There's countless numbers of people who saw the empty tomb. We think of Mary and Martha. We think of the disciples or some of the disciples. But Roman soldiers saw the empty tomb. We, we see people, no, no, probably uh, it was no mistaken that other people heard about the empty tomb and they became like, hey, I want to come check this out. And they come and see an empty tomb. But the seeing an empty tomb wasn't enough to cause people to believe. But what was? A personal encounter with a resurrected Christ. Take the disciple named Thomas, for example. I think this dude gets a really bad rap. Like, labeled with a nickname for 2,000 years as Doubting Thomas. Like, poor guy. Like, he, everybody knows Thomas as Doubting Thomas because he asked for the same evidence that all the other disciples had already received. See, the other disciples had already seen Jesus. Jesus had already appeared to, to them after his resurrection, and they believed. And Thomas wasn't with them when this happened. So they, they come back and they tell him, hey, we have seen the Lord. And Thomas is kind of like... Yeah, all right, I, I, there's doubt there. He doesn't believe them. Now, he shouldn't have doubted, right? None of them should have doubted. In fact, none of them should have been anywhere else on that third day other than the front of the tomb. Why? Because Jesus had told them all on three different occasions, I'm gonna suffer, I'm gonna die, I'm gonna rise again on the third day. Three different times he's told them this. They should have all been camped out with a large spread, right? Food, banquet, everything waiting right in front of the tomb, waiting for Jesus to walk on out like Lazarus. But no, they're not. Why? Because they all had their, their moments of doubt. They didn't understand. They didn't believe until they saw the resurrected Christ. But either way, what does Thomas do in John chapter 20? He asks for evidence. He's saying, unless I see in his hands, that's Jesus, the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand in his side, I will never believe. Oh, snap. That is some like serious language that's coming out of Thomas's mouth there. He goes, if I don't see this, if I can't put my hand in his finger in, or my finger in his hand and I can't put my hand in his side, I'm not gonna believe. That's bold words from Thomas right there, right? Eight days pass and who walks in the room? Jesus. Again, one of those things like, I wish I was a fly on the wall. I would like to see this one because now what happens? Jesus walks in the room and he tells Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands. Put out your hand and place it on my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. And you know what Thomas did? He immediately spoke. 
And he said, my Lord, my God. My sovereign God. He didn't touch his hands. He didn't touch his side. There's no mention of that in the text that he did. No mention of Thomas doing those things. No, he saw and he believed and he cried out, you are my sovereign. You are my king. Now with that, we'll have people in our lives who will say, all right, if that happened, like if that right there happened, yeah, I'm believing. (laughs) If that happened to me, pastor, okay, I'll believe. And the answer there we have to be very understanding is not necessarily. Not necessarily. You may respond just like Pharaoh. Maybe that's where you find yourself today. You're, you're responding like Pharaoh. Because as Peter tells us, we have something even more sure than any experience. We have the word of God. This coming from a guy, Peter, who had witnessed the transfiguration. Transfiguration being when Jesus went up on the mountaintop with, with Peter and John and went up there on the mountaintop and they experienced witnessing this uh, Elijah and Moses talking with Jesus. Like, can you imagine that? How cool that experience would have been as well? Like being able to experience watching Jesus talking with Moses and Elijah, Peter being like, hey, I'll make you some tents. That's how real this experience was for him. But Peter comes back and says, yeah, as real as that experience was, 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 19, referring to this experience, and we have a prophetic word more fully confirmed. He's referring to the scriptures We have a prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention. Pay attention to the word, not to an experience. That's ultimately what what Jesus was referring to in his response to Thomas when he said, blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Blessed are those who hear the good news and believe. Blessed are those who hear the, the word of God preached and proclaimed and shared that are told of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, and they believe. Blessed are they. Blessed are they who, who believe and serve and worship him as Lord and Savior and no other. Blessed are they. But for those who don't, we turn our attention to the first plague and we're reminded there shall be blood. Now, I, I don't list this as a fifth point because it's not a part of the pattern, but it is a part of the overall theme of Exodus and of Scripture. There shall be blood. So in that sense, it's a point of, of its own. Now, in understanding this, this first plague, we've got to understand that the Nile River was the lifeblood of Egypt. Egypt doesn't exist if the Nile does not exist. It's, it's a river running through a desert. And especially at this point in history, where the people of Egypt relied on it for everything. And if you, if you traveled to, to Egypt today, as if you made your way to Cairo, and all throughout Egypt, you're going to notice all the towns and all the cities are built up along the river. Why? Because it is the source of life. It's the source of transportation. It's the source of so many things. It is essential. So when the Lord tells him in verse 19, Say to Aaron, take your staff and stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over their rivers, their canals and their ponds and all their pools of water so that they may become blood and there shall be blood throughout all the land of Egypt, even in vessels of wood and in vessels of stone. This is signaling a national catastrophe of massive proportions in verse 25 that tells us that this lasted for seven days. 
Seven days where all of this was affecting them, all of their water supply turning to blood. If they wanted any water at all, they had to deep, dig deep wells in order to get the water. National emergency here. So following the pattern we just looked at, we see Moses and Aaron continuing their obedience in verse 20. Moses and Aaron did as the Lord commanded. Then we see God's sovereignty over Egypt's little G gods on display over creation and everything else as the Nile is turned to blood. Fish died, Nile stank, and people couldn't drink the water. There was blood throughout all the land of Egypt. There was judgment. And then here comes the demonic imitation. Because what do the magicians do in verse 22? They did, did the same by their secret arts. And here's my question in this. Why? Like specifically, why imitate here? All right? If you're the magician and you're coming into this spot and all the water has been turned to blood, if you're Pharaoh, why imitate it? Like why not reverse it instead, right? Why in the world would you compound your suffering? Why would you make it worse just to prove a point? Like, hey, we can do the exact same thing. You're just making your life worse. Why not reverse it? Because they can't. They cannot reverse it. They cannot save. They can only deceive. That's the same thing that's true with Satan. He cannot save. He can only deceive. Oh, and he is good at the deception and making us think that that deception can then save. But it cannot. Attempting us to deceive us into serving and worshiping the idols of this world, thinking that our salvation and our joy and our fulfillment is going to come through them, deceiving us in, into thinking that they will bring us that joy and that happiness, again, that salvation, and it won't. And then all of that leads to what? The, the fourth pattern, Pharaoh's heart remaining hard against the Lord. Our hearts, if we're buying into the deceptions of the evil one, remaining hard against the because of the deceptions of the Lord, of, 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 the, of the evil one, not the Lord. The Lord is anything but deceptive. He is true and honest in everything he does. But Pharaoh refuses to listen. He refuses to believe. And I'm not naive enough to think that there are not some in this room today who refuse to listen and refuse to believe. And the application of all of this for us isn't just to teach us about a historical past and say, hey, this is a great story from way back when, but also to point us to our present and future reality. See, in Revelation chapter 16, we read of how the water will be turned to blood during the great judgment that is to come. It's a look forward at what is to come, not just a look back. You can read all of chapter 16 for yourself later, but let's pick up in verse 3. The second angel poured out his bowl into the sea and it became like the blood of a corpse and every living thing died that was in the sea. The third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of water and they became blood. And I heard the angel in charge of, what, of the water say, just are you, O holy one, who is and who was, for you brought these judgments. For they have shed the blood of saints and prophets and you have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. And I heard the altar saying, yes, Lord God, the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. Now, some will say this imagery is only symbolism, and I'm not here to debate that this morning. 
But as if it was only symbolism. And again, I'm not saying that. Then how much worse than what, what this is actually be than what it's symbolizing? It, it definitely won't be less severe than what we're reading here if it's symbolism. If it's symbolism, then it's saying words cannot do justice to how horrific the judgment of God will be upon those who will experience it. There's no way to do justice. It's those moments when words do not suffice. See, we're reminded of passages like this and the one that we're reading today, that God's judgment against unbelievers is real and it is terrifying. Those who harden their hearts towards God, refuse to repent and believe, refuse to serve and to worship him as Lord, will experience his just judgment for all of eternity. So texts like this should first cause us to take an introspective look at ourselves. What is our reality? Who is the God that we love and worship? Who is the Lord that we serve? Is it the Lord God Almighty or is it an imitation that this world is putting forth? Now, such a text should also open our eyes to the lostness that exists throughout the world. The reality that exists for those who have never repented and believed in the gospel. Those who have never heard the countless billions who have yet to hear from neighbors next door to people across the globe, people who have not heard this, it should compel us to go and to share and to tell. In fact, every tragedy that we ever hear of, every obituary that we ever read should be a reminder of how fleeting our time on this earth really is and that judgment is coming. We will all stand before the Lord and have to give an account. Not, not for our neighbor, not for, for our family, but for ourselves. And how will you answer that? Will you base your, your, your worth on, on yourself or on the righteous blood of Christ? But now as we close, I want to direct your attention to John chapter two. Jesus is at a wedding in Canaan in Galilee. His mom's there, his disciples are there and we're, we're not just talking about a few hour ceremony for a wedding. We're talking about like a whole week event. And this is day three of this wedding celebration and what happens? The wine runs out. It's an emergency like Jesus' mom comes and, and she comes and he's like, okay, we have got no more wine. And what does Jesus do? Has six stone water jars, each able to hold 20 to 30 gallons each. He takes these six stone water jars and what's he do? He has them filled to the top and does what? He turns that water into wine. And we're not talking about $2 Aldi wine here but we're talking about like the good wine, right? And I, and I picture this as a good red wine because the master of the wedding feast comes and he says, man, this is good. You've saved the best for last. Now, why do I bring this up? Because we need to be reminded, we need to be taught that the same God who will bring judgment and wrath upon unbelievers is the same God who bestows lavish, lavish blessing and provision and grace upon his children. We who are in Christ will not receive this judgment. No, we who are in Christ will one day be invited to the marriage supper of the lamb where we will feast with Christ forever because of his body and his blood that was shed for us. See church, there shall be blood to atone for sin. It's either Christ's blood or it's ours. So in the words of Joshua, 
the one who will lead these Israelites into the, into the promised land eventually. Choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods who your father served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Church, how do you answer that question today? Choose this day whom you will serve. Who will it be? Will it be the gods of this world? The little G gods of this world? The imitations? Or will it be the Lord? Yahweh. Let's pray together. Lord, you are sovereign. And I pray each and every one of us will will testify to that today. Not only with our lips, but with our actions. We ask that all of creation will do the same. Forgive us, O Lord, of our sin. And in our confession, help us to rest in the finished work of Christ. Help us to seek and to savor Christ. Not not just because of what we receive, but for who he is, for who you are. The cornerstone of all of creation. And for those who are not resting in Christ today, are, are not treasuring you above all else, Lord, we ask that today will be the day of salvation. Soften their hearts to believe. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.